McKelvey and the other one was Norman Bent. And uh, so at an early age, I was exposed to what polio does. And of course, I was older than that when I found out that my mother had polio and both legs as an infant. And um, my grandmother's uh, entry into her uh, baby book at the age of 18 months was, uh, Marjorie has recovered contrary to all hopes and expectations. Mm -hmm. And she was probably six or seven, she said, uh, a little more before she walked without a hitch. And then Miriam always said she had a peculiar gait. My mother was 60 years old before I could walk faster than she could. And, uh, and she could do a mile in 15 minutes easy, uh, you know, no problem. Uh, she had a great uncle, I guess it was, or an uncle that was in medicine and was ahead enough of his time so that when my grandmother brought the kids up to the country uh, for the summers and vacations and stuff, uh, he would say to her, take her shoes and stockings off and let her go barefoot because this mm -hmm. develops the muscles and the, the balance and uh, so forth. And, you know, my mother was born in uh, 1897. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, nice young ladies did not go barefoot. You know, I mean, that was just unheard of. Uh, so that uh, she was fortunate. So. Uh, when the polio scares came around, and as kids, my mother would never allow us to swim in Patanapo unless the water was coming over the dam because of polio. Interesting. And when the um, shots came around, when the sock vaccine came around, uh, and my daughter was in grade school, uh, and they sent out the um, things for permission, uh, I signed it because I had seen firsthand what polio could do. And, uh, you know, th there were some kids that um, had trouble with the vaccine, but uh, mine did not. And then when the uh, oral stuff came out, uh, I made my whole family go and, and get it all. Um, you know, so that um, it, it just, it's one of those things. And uh, today, a lot of the childhood diseases that I had and survived are uh, much more virulent today. and there's no reason for there being whooping cough or measles or any of that kind of stuff because the stuff is out there and this generation has not seen the side effects of it so they just figure that a lot of that's unnecessary. If your religion forbids it then I see okay fine go along with that but um, to um, deprive your child of it when they have free clinics and so on and so forth, if you really want to, uh, I, I think is wrong. But that's just my personal opinion. Um, I think that uh, we ended the last conversation with you remembering that you, you had some recollection of the Hurricane of 38. All right. Not only the Hurricane of 38, but the Flood of 36. Well, that I don't know nothing about, so tell me about that. Uh, the only thing I know about the flood of 36, really, because um, I was six years old, um, Nisitissit River flooded in good shape. Now, the house has since been torn down, but my aunt Miriam and Uncle Fred lived in the house that when you headed out toward the railroad station, uh, would be just on the left-hand side, just beyond the river. And that house has since been torn down. They get flooded out. And they came up to our house to stay. Wow. <laughs> so that's how come I recollect the, the flood of 36. The uh, hurricane of 38. I came home from school 
And I said to my father, uh, he, he was working on the, on the house, I said, the uh, kids say that there's going to be a hurricane. Oh, you know, you know that just talking and so forth, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was windy, but it gets windy. And, um, one of the things I specifically remember is the yellow tint to the sky in the air. And uh, I don't know what time it started blowing up real hard, but uh, it was nighttime. And, and see, this was in September. My father had just put tar paper on a big woodshed. And, you know, the wind is going to take that with it. And I, when I think back on it, my mother must have been terrified to death. But he went out and he climbed up on that shed and he took edgings and he nailed a pattern uh, which was there until the shed came down, uh, you know, to hold the tar paper down. And then the house began to shake because uh, it was built over the side of a hill and it was three stories high. And um, so uh, the wind was buffeting it. So he went out and he got a big log and he put it between the woodshed and the house, you know, uh, at, a, at an angle to, um, you know, stabilize the house a bit. And as kids, we were like Huck, like Huck Finn, you know, we were barefoot. We always had a rag tied around at least one toe because we were stubbing them on the tree roots or something because it was a wooded lot. And so he cut the roots that were above the ground off of the big pine tree that was out in front of the house. You know, and it made a better pathway and we kids weren't uh, getting hurt so often and so forth. And David and I were talking about this when I was down there last week, uh, Saturday. It was before my father closed in the porch. The porch was just a platform. And he may have had a roof over it. I can't remember at this point, but uh, it, it had not been enclosed yet. And so you could see from the window right straight out through the porch into the front yard, and you could see that tree. And the wind would hit that tree, and it would lift up, and you could see all the roots underneath that tree. And then it would go back down to the ground. And we just sat there. My mother sat there with an arm around each one of us. And I, I don't remember yelling or saying anything, you know, but it just, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, I can still see it. David said the same thing. You could still see it. You'd go up and do it. And then someplace along... Uh, it was this big crash. Now, Leonard Repon's barn, where uh, he had his uh, hen business um, and so forth, um, you know, and, and the slaughter part of it, it was in the cellar. That was also built over a side hill. So that was a good three, four stories high, you know, in its height. And so my father figured, oh, God, that goes, we always called him Rippy. That's Rippy's barn. That's Rippy's barn. And so he went out to see, you know, if uh, th that's what had happened and if everybody was okay. Well, it wasn't Rippy's barn. Uh, see, the lot next above where my daughter has her house now um, belonged to um, Rippon. And there was a tree there that we kids called the Indian tent tree. It was a big pine tree. 
the girth of it was so that an adult couldn't even begin to put their arms around it. And David was saying uh, Saturday, he said it had to be at least three feet across the butt. And it was well, at, well up over 100 feet tall. And we call it the Indian <coughs> tent tree because the lower branches came down and practically touched the ground. And we used to go in under there and play and have picnics and whatever. And uh, that's what came down. Now, he, th th this thing had to have roots like crazy. It had been there for probably 100 years <laughs> or 50 anyway to be that size. It was humongous. And it came down across the road, but the tip came just enough so that they could drive out over it. Uh, we did not lose any trees on our property. My father got up the next morning, everything was standing. And another thing I remember about the next morning was the air was just as fresh and clean smelling as you could ever get, you know what I mean? It, it, there was a totally different feeling in the air and a different smell to it. And so he got in his car, truck, whatever he had, to head to go to work, and he head toward Brookline. A few minutes later, he's back. There's trees all over the road. There's no way, you, you know. So then, um, let's see, my mother, and uh, I suppose, I don't know whether David went, I don't remember whether David was with us or not, but uh, my mother and Mrs. Rapon, Grandma Mackey, and uh, I think it was anybody else. Anyway, we started walking around the neighborhood. And now, you know, I spoke about Jim Day uh, last time. Uh, th th there's more I want to say about him, too, someplace along the line. But uh, down past that house, you know, there was trees. You know, I mean, huge, great big logs. The state of New Hampshire probably lost a large percentage of every pine tree that they had uh, in that uh, hurricane. And they were just crisscrossed like matchsticks all over the road. My mother had a camera. She took a bunch of pictures, which I can't <laughs> give to you because uh, she sent the film by me down to the school to take in to have it developed. And I didn't get it in the first recess. And then um, somebody stole it out of my desk and unrolled it. And that was the end of that one. So. <clears throat> But um, we went down and we walked around and then, um, you know, they, it, well, it was dirt road then, but um, where uh, the Repons live now, the, the, the road goes up um, in the Milford end of it, it's called Ranella Road. I, That's I, right, Ranella Road. Okay, yeah. so uh, Brookline has the same thing. So um, we went up there. Now, across the street from Repons' house, across Ranella Road, they had this huge, great big grove of pine trees, flat. And then we walked down and, um, let's see, Mr. and Mrs. Pecker lived in the house at the foot of the hill, where Bobby Gay lives now and all those, those houses weren't built. Um, and then um, the hills lived there. I had the woman's name in my mind a few minutes ago, but anyway. but. Um, by then, you've uh, gone into uh, Milford. But uh, we went down to their house, and 
Yeah, that there's just trees just all over the place. What the government did was to have these things logged, cleared out of the way. And of course, we didn't have electricity then. So as far as losing power is concerned, <laughs> I presume they, they did all over the place, but <clears throat> didn't bother us because kerosene lamps went just the same. Uh, but um, they logged this stuff, and then they put it in the ponds to keep. Now, I heard that Willard Cummings had something to do with that yeah, sort of activity. Well, it, you know? it was um, Melindy Pond yeah. uh, was where they put the, a lot of the logs. It was over across uh, from Willard's house. and um, Left them in the water so they wouldn't rot. Yep. Mm. And, of course, some of them sink. And now if you've seen some of these, uh, like this old house kind of programs and stuff, uh, some of this stuff that they bring up from the bottom now is practically indestructible and uh, is worth a whole lot of money. Now whether pine is or not, I don't know, but I guess uh, Willard, I think, uh, eventually uh, salvaged a bunch that had gone down. But uh, what the government did was bring in a portable sawmill eventually and they sawed it into lumber and then, um, you know, did something with it. I presume somebody bought it or they sold it because I can remember the, the sawmill being there. I can remember the uh, logs were what um, lumbermen call boomed. Um, you have, um, like, uh, dimension stuff that is hitched together in links and you have it moored so that you can keep the logs on one side of the pond or whatever or and keep them in a group so that they're just not floating around loose all over the place. You remember that at Melindy? Oh yes, yeah. because uh, my father, you know, th that was what he'd made his living with when uh, he was in Maine. He, he was uh, a woodsman and he used to uh, ride the log uh, drives uh, down the river. And uh, when one of the last times that uh, we went up into, uh, we went to back to State Park uh, several years ago now, and we went in and Millinocket drove through and came out and Moosehead, but we stopped at Ripagina's Dam and we saw the last log drive that they let come down through and go over the dam. So th that made me feel good. Uh, but Daddy went down, of course, you know, he was interested. This is something he'd done all his life, and he was interested in it. And was a young fellow, you know, fresh out of college, and uh, he was booming up the logs and stuff, and my father told him he didn't think that that was going to work. Well, like, you know, he knew. He knew what he was doing, and so, you know, okay, fine. Eventually, he came and got my father to straighten him out, you know, but he had enough in him to come and say, okay, I need help. And uh, so my father went down and helped him. Um, everybody said that um, it would kill all the fish. You know, all those logs in there would kill the fish. Uh, Melinda is spring-fed. Uh, and if, if you ever have skated on it, you know it's spring-fed because as the stuff, you know, uh, the, the springs feed the water in, the ice begins to crack and rumble underneath your feet. Uh, you're not in any danger of getting uh, drowned or hurt or anything, but uh, every once in a while it would pop the ice up a bit or something, you know. <clears throat> would you skate on that pond? Oh, yeah, I skated on that for years. I used to skate on that, um, well, it was from there up to Jenny's house, which is maybe a mile. Uh, 
I would skate until I couldn't feel my feet anymore, and I would not feel my feet until after I got home, took my shoes off, and stuck them up in front of the wood stove. Um, you know, oh yeah, I skated oh, many, many years on that pond. And uh, my brother ice fished on it. Uh, I used to fish for pickerel. Uh, I wasn't interested in ice fishing, but I would go down and I would skate, and um, you know, he would fish. And uh, so we would do that together. But um, they, they claimed that it would kill all the fish. And uh, my father didn't believe it. And so when they had <clears throat> got some of the logs sawed up so there weren't so many there and they had them boomed over, um, the sawmill was off of um, Old Brookline Road. You know, and, and it, was, uh, it was up in there uh, on the left-hand side. In Milford. Going, uh, Old Milford Road. Oh, sorry. Oh, Old, okay. Milford Road. Old Milford Road. Old Milford Road. Okay. Um, We would go out, and I used to go out at night, and we'd go hunt pout fishing. And he and my brother, I don't think I ever got a big one, but he and my brother pulled in hunt pout that weighed over a pound, now, which are huge for hunt pout. What did, when you say at night, did you have? Well, hunt pout is supposed to be night fishing. Um, How is it done? You, you just bait a hook and heave it over. You let your hook touch the bottom and you bring it up a few inches. No, uh, no lamps aren't involved? Uh, well, you, ha you have the lantern. Um, uh, one of these um, functions of the lantern is not just to let you be able to see to uh, take them off the hook. And of course, they've got the horns. You have to learn how to do it. Um, and, um, and to put the worm on your hook, you fish with the worm. And um, the... Um, thing is, hornpout are bottom-dwelling fish. They don't know whether it's night or day down there in dark water. When my father began working the night shift, he went fishing daytime, and everybody told him he was crazy. I have gone down to that pond many times in the afternoon. The limit was 40. I'd get my 40 and nothing flat. And come home. Okay. Uh, you know, and when you stop, I never thought about it then, but when you stop and think about it, they were bottom dwelling fish, and you can't see the bottom in Melindy Pond. Uh, so, how do they know? Right. Uh, you start down there. <laughs> and, uh, and then every once in a while, you'd, you'd get a bunch of smart ones, and they'd eat the worm off the hook, and you wouldn't catch them. And of course, what my father used to do, because they have a tendency to swallow the hook, um, he would file the barb almost off. And so, and it was a help to us kids too, and and taking them off. But he always did that with the hooks that we went on pout fishing with, and that's the only fish I ever caught was on uh, pout. But um, and we used to go every spring to Earl Stickney's, whose uh, house uh, was um, the one that's on the same side and just beyond uh, Hampshire Hills and Milford. And uh, my father and Earl had been friends for a long time, and at one time they had a farm that was a little further up. But we used to go every spring and dig the worms. And then we had a big galvanized uh, tub, and my father would fill it full of dirt, and you put some cornmeal in it, and uh, you kept your worms for the whole season. <clears throat> and um, so every, every year. Earl Stickney and my father used to work in the woods together. Earl would come every morning and pick him up 
and the horse and buggy. And they would go somewhere down toward Brookline, probably um, into one of the Heselton Caldwell lots, um, which would be um, that White House that I said the Dickies lived in it, that has antiques now uh, out in there. Now they built a whole bunch of houses. Well, that wasn't houses <clears throat> in those days. They had a sawmill in there that my father used to work in. And uh, he and Howard used, uh, Dickie used to uh, work in the woods out there. And so my father and Earl Stickney would work in the woods. And then we had a circular driveway. And you know, it was up a slope. And you'd come in, and you know, we'd let my father off, let the horse rest, and talk for a few minutes, and then he'd go out. And of course, you know, it's not a blind driveway, but you know, to the top of the hill is not too big a distance. Some car came barreling over there one day and got the buggy. And uh, Earl didn't get hurt, horse didn't get hurt, but as far as I know, the remains of the buggy just rotted away in our backyard and, <laughs> and made humus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to see Earl uh, in town many times and, um, you know, we talk about it. Earl Stickney also had hives of bees <clears throat> and uh, as kids in 4-H we each had a hive and um, they swarmed on us once mm -hmm. and so we got Earl down and they sent my uh, young brother up the tree with the saw and the rope, and you hitched the rope onto the la limb that their swarm was on. And when they're swarming, they're, they're not going to sting particularly, so I'm told. <clears throat> I've never tried to prove the theory. But, um, and um, then uh, you would, you know, they, they'd let it down, or you'd saw the branch off, or, you know, whatever. So David was the one that was doing that. Well, the first time it didn't work, and they swarmed the second time they had to do it. And, um, of course, Earl had the smoker and everything, and he was around bees all the time. And I, I think bees must be like any other animal. They sense your fear, uh, you know, if, if you uh, are exuding it. And um, he's pouring through this swarm of bees and you know, taking out the queens, you know. <laughs> because that's why they swarm, because they get more than one queen. And she's going to take, you know, they're defectors, you know, <laughs> she's taking them with her. And then he looked in the hive, and um, the queen cells, you can pick out right away, because they stick out like, you know, an inch or so, uh, you know, they're, they're really big. And he says, boy, this hive really had plans. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he just broke those open and put them back in with the queen, and then it's fine. And then we would have some of the uh, honey at the end of the season, you know, but, uh, and I used to be fascinated. I would lay on the ground, on my stomach, in the back of the hives, and just watch them do their thing, you know, come and go, come and go. It's uh, very orchestrated, and they, they all know just exactly, you know, what their thing is, and then, um, it always amused me that the males aren't good for anything. Uh, you know, it's it's the it's females. Com it's common to many species. Yeah, <laughs> present company excluded. Right. But uh, <clears throat> that um, it was the, the women that did the work and produced the, the thing and so on and so forth and all. And um, it, it, that always amused me. But um, the sawmill that they had 
See, I, I get off here and I start thinking about people. Um, the sawmill, um, I can remember them, um, you know, cutting up the logs and, and stuff. And that's, um, well, I was fairly young. And I think that was probably either the first or second sawmill I had ever seen in operation. And that was so that you could get close enough to it. You could uh, see them roll the logs on with the cant hook and um, the sawyer put them on and... Uh, Sawyer uh, has to be have a good eye. He has to be able to look at that log and um, know how he's going to square it off, uh, which is where the slabs come from. And then um, is he going to get two by fours, two by sixes, or one inch boards, or what? You know, how is he going to cut that up? And I think most of it they were cutting up just into one inch boards. But I mean, a Sawyer has to be able to look at a log and to know that and uh, be able to cut it up into its its best thing. And I got in many years we burned slabs in the uh, big old wood stove, and um, because of the pine pitch and stuff, they're, they're treacherous. You have to be careful. And um, my father's garage um, was he, he built. Uh, he framed it up with um, saplings, and uh, closed it in with slabs. Hmm. And I put the slabs vertically, and um, so you know it was a lot of use for them. Now, that sawmill generated a humongous sawdust pile, of course. And as kids, we were forbidden to play on it because it, well, a gravel bank is the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it can have air pockets, which will suck you in, and then you're going to smother if, if somebody can't get you out right away. So uh, our 4-H leader uh, was uh, Mrs. Uh, Willard Cummings Marguerite, and um, we would, you know, go down to the pond. They had a big dog, uh, Prinny. <clears throat> His name was Prince, supposedly, but we always called him Prinny. Uh, and I've described him someplace, I think, before. Uh, he loved kids, uh, but his, the tail he had on him, you know, God, it must have been a couple inches in diameter at the base, and he'd wag that, and every three-year-old kid and under would be flat on the ground. You know, he didn't mean it, but that just was... And he, he loved kids, he, and he would go with us. And... I'm sure that they knew that that's what we were doing, and we must have come back with sawdust in our hair and around our clothes, and we would go down and we would run and jump and slide down that sawdust pile, yelling and screaming, and Prinny would be after us, and you know, I'd have you by the shirt collar, you know, because he didn't want you to fall and whatever. But um, that that was the uh, result uh, of the hurricane of 38, and it, it, it takes probably 20 years for a pine tree to get to be any size uh, and I don't know even then um, whether it's really big enough to cut the lumber or not uh, so that uh, that just it, it set back that industry it had to for uh, you know a long time because they, they harvested and so forth but Willard always um, when my brother worked for Willard uh, he had his own little sawmill it's Sit. still there yeah. and um, used to work it and when my brother was 14 he had his license it was wartime he had his license to drive all the farm machinery and the farm trucks on the road and uh, he used to do it and they 14 15 years old and they'd go away for a couple of weeks and leave him with the farm the cows to milk and the chickens and stuff and when uh, David used to sing to the cows now uh, he has a little bit more pitch than I have, but it still isn't anything spectacular. Neither one of us have a musical voice. Uh, 
they used to sing to the cows when he milked. And when he went in the service and somebody else was doing the milking, then the production went down for a while because <laughs> they were used to David. That's wonderful. <laughs> Which is funny, you know, it is. Uh, one of the other people that I forgot in um, talking uh, about the kids who went to school with me, because she didn't graduate with us. Uh, Bobby did, so I don't know why I forgot him. But anyway, it was Janie Wilkins. Uh, now, they lived in the house across from what used to be Highland Wickham's. The store, you know, I told you know what used to be the old post office in uh, Brookline after uh, there wasn't a store any longer, um, and I told you about the um, drive-in movie kind of thing that he had started. Well, the uh, Wilkins were in that first house when you go by that field if you headed toward town. Um, there was um, Clifford, I presume they call him Cliffy, so his name must have been Clifford. Uh, he was in CCC. Um, Corps as uh, a young man and then uh, went into the army and um, then there was an older girl uh, God, I can't I think there was one there was um, there may have been another girl I'm not sure but then there were twins and my mother helped deliver those twins Uh, Ruth and Roy and they were one or two years older than I was and um, then Janie was in my class. And now Jane did not graduate from Brookline Grammar School with us, so they must have moved away. Um, you know, I, I can't remember. But, um, you know, her name came back to me after we talked uh, the other time. What about uh, Train? You oh, yes. Um, oh, I must have been, I was not old enough to go to school. And, uh, I was down to my aunt and uh, uncle, Mim and Fred's, uh, when they lived there on Bond Street. And uh, of course, the highway wasn't there. And they walked me down to the railroad station, you know, and the big steam train came in. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm with an adult, so I, I, I'm not scared. But you're in pretty much awe of this thing. It's such a size to it, and it's making all these noises and stuff, you know. And um, I'd heard them before, but I'd never been that close to one. And I can remember my Uncle Fred saying to me, Are you afraid? And I said, Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have admitted it if I'd been shaking all over, you know. But um, the, the train used to come through. And then, uh, as I said,